Amen. Hey, once again, we are in our topic of world religions, cults, and the occult, and we are on number four, and that's the exciting topic, rhymes with Hinduism, is Hinduism. You guys are getting better uh, at that as well. And that's right, just by way of recap, we've already seen for the last three weeks, who's counting? Cheryl is, apparently, right, Cheryl? Uh, what is Hinduism? That's the people who moved over about 2000 BC-ish. Uh, in the Indus River. We're going to get into that again, Lord willing, tonight. Uh, what do they base their beliefs on? The Hindu Vedas and other writings, which is not at all like the Bible. So anybody who says that, oh, you know, the Hindu Vedas, the Book of Mormon, the Bible, it's all the same. No, it's not at all. The history and the chronology of Hinduism, we took a look at that. The evangelization of Hinduism to the West and the different ways that they're sneaking into the culture, even the church, as we've been seeing. And the last couple of times, the terminology with Hinduism. And of course, last time we left off on the big topic of yoga. Okay, and how that is one of the major ways that they are snookering people, even in the church, uh, into learning Hinduism and uh, leading them astray, okay, from God's truth. But that's right, Ken, give it up for Ken once again. His faith is paid off. What a prayer warrior. We're going to get into the workbook. Now, don't cry if you want to get past the first sentence, but we're going to get into the workbook. Okay, Hinduism, that's right. Now, I want to dispel this first line because I disagree with this first line in the workbook. Okay, Hinduism began in 2000 B.C. Now, as we saw, if you're already there before, in our study, yeah, maybe uh, the people moved to the Indus River, where we get the term Hindu from the Indus River. Maybe they went there in about 2000 B.C. I'll give you that. Okay, but to say that's when Hinduism started, you just got there. So how do you get some religion going? Well, we saw in the chronology, when did the Hindu, uh, uh, their version of the scripture, the Vedas, when did the Vedas come on the scene? 1500 BC. So right there, excuse me, you don't even have the Vedas starting to come in line until 1500 BC. So how can you say 2000? So I disagree with that. Now, the reason why I'm disagreeing with that, I'm going to take a little bit of time to dispel that, is because you probably heard the same thing. People, they'll come up to you, well, don't you realize that Hinduism was written before Christianity, therefore it's got to be truer because it's older. Anybody hear something like that? You know, this is an older thing, and they do, well, and it's out there, and that's what people they kind of trip over that. But it's actually not true, and we're going to do the investigation uh, tonight. Uh, they say it with this charge, though, that it began in 2000, which again I disagree with. I'd say more like 1500 with the Vedas. Uh, but even if you want to play with that, 2000, they said it makes the oldest organized religion in the world. Now, but here's the problem. What's the very next line? God called Abram, later to be Abraham, out of the Haran to journey to Canaan in approximately what? 2091. So for those of you hooked on reverse math, it's BC, remember. Which comes first, 2091 or 2000? Right? We're a little hesitant with that answer, but yes, it's not AD, it's BC, okay. Uh, okay, and then Isaac was born 2066, and then Jacob was born 2006, just a few years ago. No, it's BC, it's BC, okay, as we saw there. So, so how can you say that's the oldest one when you got the major pillars of Judaism, which is the forerunner, of course, Christianity, Jesus fulfilling through the Jewish people, the Genesis 3.15, the promise that from the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent, right? Jesus, right? How could you say it's the oldest one right there? It doesn't make sense. But I want to go even further back and show you that the, uh, the biblical account was around long before uh, Hinduism even showed up on the scene, even if you wanted to take the 2000 date, which I disagree with. Okay, But let's just do some chronology. All right, About 4000 BC. How many guys remember that? Yeah, none of you. Okay, Roughly about 4000 BC, roughly. Okay, Not going to get overly dogmatic, but roughly about that's when you had the creation account with the Garden of Eden, the fall of man. 
uh, it was uh, unfortunate, right? Then you got it from about 3,000 BC, 1,000 year span. You got Adam uh, going through Noah. Okay, about 2,500 BC, some say 2,400. That's when you see the wickedness of man also during that time increasing, but culminating to the point where God says, I've had enough of it, Genesis 6, and he's going to send the flood, right? 24, 2,500 BC, okay? Uh, and continue after the flood. Flood lasted for uh, over a year, okay, if you do the math there. And then you got uh, Noah and his family, Ham, Shem, Japheth, his sons and wives, and of course, Noah and his wife. And then you have an event shortly after that in Genesis 11. You see this event called the Tower of what? Tower of Babel. Okay, now the Tower of Babel, uh, most would say, took place, and again, roughly, roughly about 2250 BC. Now, notice that we're, we're not even at 2000 yet, but notice how much has transpired before we even got there of biblical events from the biblical account. Right? So after the Tower of Babel, what's God do? disperses the nations. We're going to read that text in, in a little bit. 2091, again, uh, God sends Abram uh, out and uh, journeys. Then uh, the famine was in Canaan in 2090. Abraham and Lot, remember that account? They part ways, 2085. Uh, Abraham gets the, the promise from God, right? And starts to establish the covenant in 2085 and then 2081. Then you got uh, the issue with Sarah and uh, uh, Hagar. Uh, Ishmael's born. He didn't wait for God's promise. 2080. The covenant of circumcision. So God's instituting uh, the covenant there. 2067. We're still not at 2000. God promises the birth of Isaac. 2067. The destruction of Sodom. Uh, 2066. Isaac was born. Hagar and Ishmael sent away in 2064. Isaac was offered as the typology of Jesus Christ in 2054. The death and burial of Sarah in 2030. Isaac marries Rebecca. Now the next generation is coming up on the scene. And 2006, you got the birth of Jacob and Esau, okay, notice all that took place before what? 2000 BC. So how can you say that's the oldest organized religion, right? And that's if you take that date, which I disagree with. Because how do you have an organized religion when you don't even have their so-called sacred text around, right? But that's even that. So now let's go, okay, if you want to lean more towards when the Vedas showed up, their writings, okay, 1500 BC. Now listen, just, and, and again, this isn't everything. I'm just hitting some highlights, now, now what, what, what continues to happen? 1978, remember that year? You're thinking of John Travolta, aren't you? No, this is B.C. Got to trick you again. 1978 B.C., Esau sells his birthright. 1928 uh, B.C., Jacob flees Laban. Uh, his, uh, and Jacob has the vision of the ladder, right? Uh, 1921, uh, Jacob marries Rachel. 1960, Rachel bears Joseph. Now you're into another generation. Uh, 1908, he leaves for uh, Canaan. He, 1906, he wrestles with God. He meets Esau. Same year, he settles in Shechem. Uh, he returns to Bethel. Uh, his, and then 1906, also Jacob's name was changed to Israel, where we get the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay, uh, Joseph, okay, another generation, his sons, the 12 sons, 1898, he has his dreams. And, and we all know when you share your dreams that God gives you that everybody agrees with them and thinks they're great. Yeah, whatever. He learned that too the hard way. Uh, 1898, Joseph was sold into slavery. Uh, he, gets a, he prospers under Potiphar, uh, but then he's accused <clears throat> by Potiphar's wife falsely. 1889, he's in prison the same year. 1887, he has the cup and the baker's dreams. 1886, he's put in charge. 1886, he got the seven years of plenty. Uh, the famine begins 1875. Uh, Joseph reveals his identity after his family goes in there because of the family into Egypt. Uh, then his family moves to Egypt. Jacob does, okay, into Goshen, 1875. Uh, he becomes ill, and then he gives his blessing, and he dies, 1859. Then you have the, his burial, 1806. Then you have the death of Joseph, 
Okay, and the Israelites begin to multiply in Egypt, 1700 BC. Uh, <clears throat> 1600 BC, they begin to be oppressed because the king forgot all about Joseph and all the things that he did. Okay, and uh, started to persecute them. Then in 1539, again, these dates are estimate. 1539, Pharaoh ordered to kill the firstborn. And in 1525, 1525, you got the birth and the adoption of this guy named who? Moses. Now, why is that important? Because who's the author of the first five books of the Bible? Okay, the Pentateuch. Uh, his name rhymes with Moses. There's Moses. That's right, Read Two for two tonight. It's Moses, okay, is what's there. Notice this is all before that. So how could you say it's a lie? How could you say that Hinduism is the oldest organized religion on the planet? Don't buy into it. Now, what we're going to see is the reason why you have Hinduism and the reason why you have a multitude of the major religions, except for some that, like Islam that was uh, in A.D., with Muhammad, but some of these older ones, okay, is because everything spin off of the Genesis 11, the biblical account at the Tower of Babel, when God confused the languages. Open your Bibles to Genesis 11. Let's take a look at that text. Genesis 11, and uh, if you find the page that says the books of the Bible, what do you do? Hang it right there. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> and take a look at this biblical account. Now, this is long before the people journeyed to the Indus River. This is long before the Vedas ever came on the scene, right? This is uh, shortly after the flood. You'd think that mankind would learn his lesson, right? God destroyed the whole planet, save eight people and the animals that were on the ark, okay, by and large. And so uh, God says, go out there and populate and replenish, and they rebelled. You've got to be kidding me. But notice God's judgment at that rebellion, <clears throat> what he did Okay, and then from that point, because God said, go out into all the earth, they said, no, we're not going to do it. Okay, and it's a good thing we always obey God. And, uh, and so then God said, okay, fine, I'm going to make you do it, right? And here's what I'm going to do. Here's what he says. Now, the whole world had what? One language and a common speech. Do you know that's being repeated today? Right? Name a language. You don't even, I do this actually periodically. We'll have people send us emails and stuff. And it's like, what is that? I know I need glasses, Reed, but... What is that Russian? Is that Portuguese? What is that? I don't even look like Spanish. So go in there and you can go on the, on the internet and cut and paste it and have it translated for you. The language barriers are coming down, right? Mankind is getting united again for another type of rebellion. I wonder who's going to lead that rebellion. Antichrist. Okay. But anyway, so he, they had one common language, uh, one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain. This is after the flood. Uh, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there, Babylon. Area And they said to uh, one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And so that's what they did. They used a, a, a brick uh, instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Okay. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower uh, and uh, to reach uh, the, to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be what? Scattered over the face of the earth. That's what God said to do. And they didn't do it. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, who's us? The Trinity, right? Again, in the Genesis account, Elohim, plural. Uh, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, Right? And uh, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So how is this really a true event? Do we really have evidence that this happened long before Hinduism appeared on the scene? And it was because of this event that the people began to scatter, and apparently a chunk of them went to the Indus River. 
and later began Hinduism. Yes, there's a lot of evidence, and I want to share that with you uh, tonight. And the first evidence, okay, is the evidence of language itself. God confused the language. But he says there he only confused the language, but at one point it was what? A common language. Do we find any evidence of that truth? Yes, we do. Let me share with you quickly some secular research. Uh, the study of languages, for those of you hooked on languages, is called philology. Okay, say that real fast. Well, never mind, that's whatever. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, but they've actually, with the study, they've actually traced it back. The term that they use is there actually was one language. They have dubbed it the mother tongue. One such researcher is a guy named Max Mueller. He's considered one, one of the uh, top language experts, taught at Oxford University. He's got a book called Science of Language, and he said, and I quote, we have examined all possible forms which language can assume, and we now ask, can we reconcile the admission of one common origin of human speech? I answer decidedly, yes. Number two, Harold Steggers, uh, he wrote this, another guy, expert. He said, though there are countless language and dialects, approximately 3,000 currently known, yet ultimate derivation from apparent language is revealed through the continuing studies made across the boundaries of major language families. Common features of syntax and vocabulary, okay, indicate that one must be a common ancestor. Okay, another guy, Dutch scholar, uh, Gerald uh, Charles Alders, he's a famous Assyriologist, made the amazing discovery that there's a clear relationship between the, listen to this, between the languages of some of the native people in Central and South America. Now you jump the pond, right? And some of the islands, you're saying, well, how are the islands? Really? Okay. And on the uh, ancient Sumerian, the oldest known language, and the Egyptian languages, okay, he it was a formula. Uh, had considered the account of, and this is a direct quote, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. We just read that. He formally considered the account of Genesis 11, 1 through 9 to be no more than a myth, but he came to the conclusion that the, quote, biblical narrative is much more credible than had been supposed. One more. Uh, scientists are now getting even more specific. They're using computers to compare the different languages. They speculate there may have indeed been a mother tongue that they're calling the proto-world, the first world, basically when God hit a restart button, after the flood. And it's led to this comment, quote, listen to this, maybe the Bible is right. And there really was a Tower of Babel, or at least maybe there really once was a single human language before we were all cursed with the confusion of tongues. Interesting. Now, part two of languages, when you look in the older languages, you mentioned the Sumerians, but also another older language that's on the scene is the Chinese language. And when you take a look at the Chinese language, well, shocker, there's certain things that are embedded into their very language structure. And part of that is the event that happened just prior to the Tower of Babel, and that was the flood. Okay, it's built into their language, as if everybody around the world was affected by that, okay, and it still carries on today. Let me give you a couple examples of that. The Chinese word for boat is depicted by eight mouths or eight people inside of a container. I'm sure that's just a quinky dink. How many people survived the flood? Eight. Well, that's interesting. The Chinese word for total like the total amount, total, is a uniting of eight people who join hands over the earth. Not a hundred, not three, eight. The word for empty in Chinese is made up of two words, cave and work. Cave is depicted as eight people under one roof. Some would say this shows that when Noah and his family left the ark, they first moved into a cave for shelter, hence eight people under one roof. Then they left the cave each day to work, emptying the ark, and then shared this post-flood experience with future generations, which eventually found its way into the Chinese language. The Chinese character for devil is formed from three other characters, man, garden, and private. The words rebellion and confusion 
link together the words for tongue and walking. God confused the tongue languages, and what the people do? They went a-walking and dispersed over the earth. And finally, the word Chinese uh, <clears throat> for garden or field is a square, and inside the square are four straight lines like a plus sign, okay? And Genesis 2 uh, tells us a river flowed outward in four streams and watered the entire garden. Well, I'm sure that's just a giant coinkinick, okay? I don't think so. But the other thing that we see, we know that this is a true account, is what's called the biological, okay, uh, evidence, okay? And, and uh, this is what we know. So it's not only if the Genesis account is true, if this is the earlier documentation and document, uh, then certainly we should find evidence not only of a single ancestor, uh, of a single language, but a single ancestor, that we should be able to derive uh, all of our DNA and things of that nature uh, from, and by, not just a single ancestor, but a recent one. Now, what does evolution teach? Millions of years ago, right? There's an early form of guy who had a back problem. No, right? Now, listen what this, okay? It's called the mitochondrial Eve hypothesis, okay? And it reveals how mankind, this is secular. Mitochondrial Eve hypothesis, and it reveals how all mankind can now be traced back to one woman. Shocker. And one recent woman. Listen, in a recent issue of Nature, a Yale mathematician presented a model showing that the most recent person who was the direct ancestor of all humans currently alive may have lived, listen, quote, just a few thousand years ago, not millions of years ago. In fact, this woman was most likely not the biblical Eve, but rather one of the four women who survived the flood. They know this. One person stated this, listen, maybe she was Shem's wife, you know, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay, but the mitochondrial shim wife's theory doesn't have quite the same ring to it. <laughs> okay, anyway, so that's another proof. Okay, another one that we saw before that this was the earlier account, the biblical account came first before everything else, and everything else span off from there. Okay, it's not only with the languages and the biological, but also the legends. There's currently on record, at least the research that I've done, about 500, 500 different flood legends from around the world, which is what you would expect. And this is outside the Bible. Okay. And that's what we see, okay? But it gives credence that the biblical account is the root, and then when these people spread, then of course they're going to share it, and then over time it gets a little twisted, right? And this is what we see. Babylon. Now, Babylon was right next to the Tower of Babel, okay? And listen to what they have in their records, okay? The pre-flood, according to their records, the pre-flood people were giants who became impious and depraved, except one of them who reverenced the gods and was wise and prudent. His name, their spelling, almost got it right was Noah, okay? And he dwelt in Syria with three sons, Sim, pretty close to Shem, Japhet, J-A-P-E-T, pretty close, and Chim, uh, C-H-E-M, and their wives, Tadea, Pandora, Noella, and Noegla. Noah foresaw destruction. He began building an ark. 78 years after he began building, the oceans, the inland seas, and the rivers burst forth from beneath, which is interesting because that's also what the Bible says. It didn't just rain 40 days and 40 nights from above, but the waters of the deep, the earth with, that still has tons of water in it, okay, uh, burst forth. And uh, along with many days of violent rain, the waters overflowed all the mountains, and the human race was drowned except Noah and his family who survived on the ship. The ship came to rest at last on top of a mountain. China. China's got another one, again, one of the more older ones. Uh, they have a classic writing called The High King, H-I-H-K-I-N-G, if you want to check it out, The High King. Tells the story of a guy named Fuhai, right? How many of you guys drank that pop growing up? They had grape, strawberry, that's no, knee high, Ruth. Funny, funny, funny. Uh, Fuhai, uh, whom the Chinese consider to be the father of their civilization, okay? And the history records that Fuhai, his wife, once again, three sons, three daughters, escaped a great flood. 
They were the only people left alive on earth. After the flood, they repopulated the world. Uh, there's even an ancient temple in China that has a wall painting showing Fuhai's boat raging in waters and uh, uh, a dove with an olive branch in its beak flying towards it. Hmm. India, where Hinduism came from. Guess what they have? They have a flood account, which came first, right? And they believe that this guy, and you can check this out, their version of the guy who they believe started their whole race was a guy named Manu. Sounds Manu, right? Manu, right? Anyway, so he was warned that a great flood would soon come and destroy everything on earth. He was instructed to build a large ship uh, since the flood was going to happen very soon. The rain started, the waters rose, until the whole earth was covered by water. When the waters began subsiding, once again, the same story, Manu's ship was left on a mountaintop, okay, uh, as we see there. Um, but anyway, so as you can see over and over again, you've got different accounts. It doesn't matter what it is, but you see that they have these accounts. Uh, one of the interesting things, if I can uh, uh, find it here, is you have uh, basically with the, the tribal groups throughout the, of the earth, it's all the same basic story, and to the point where you got nearly 500 different flood legends around the world uh, that agree with that account. So, how many of you guys realize? There it is, because I'm not going to mess up this one. Let me give you this one, because this one's cool. This one's from Mexico. Mexico, the Toltec Indians, right? Because again, when God scattered, they went all over the earth. It wasn't just that area, right? All over the earth. Uh, <clears throat> their story, the histories of the Toltec Indians in ancient Mexico, they believe that the first world lasted 1,716 years and was destroyed by a great flood that covered even the highest mountains. Their story tells of a man named Tappy, T-A-P-I, uh, who was a very pious man. The creator told Tappy to build a boat that he would live in and escape the destruction. Uh, he was told to take his wife, a pair of every animal that was alive, into the boat. Uh, naturally, uh, listen to this, naturally everyone thought he was crazy. Then the rain started and the flood came. He no crazy is the translation. <laughs> Uh, the men and the animals tried to climb the mountains, but the mountains became flooded as well. Finally, the rain ended, <clears throat> and Tappy decided that the water had dried up when he let loose a dove that did not return. But listen to this. They had a little interesting nugget. I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. But you always wondered, why did these people rebel? God said, get out there, right? Repopulate the earth. You've got to be kidding me. And, this, you know, and the scripture says, you know, they wanted to make a name for themselves and create this big, giant tower, and they weren't going to go. Well, listen to what he says, or this account says. Uh, um, following the great flood, the people began to multiply and build a very high great tower to provide a safe place in case the world were destroyed again. However, everyone started to speak different languages, and the people became confused. So different language groups wandered to other parts of the world. The Toltecs claimed they started as a family of seven friends okay, and their wives who spoke the same language. They crossed the great waters, lived in caves, <clears throat> wandered for 104 years until they came to southern Mexico approximately 520 years after the great flood. Interesting. 120 tribal groups in North America, Central America, the same thing. It's all the general flood account. And one guy said this, quote, There are many descriptions of the remarkable event called the Genesis Flood. He says, and some of these have uh, come from Greek historians, some from Babylonian records, some from the cuneiform tablets of Mesopotamia, and still others from the uh, mythology and traditions of different nations. So that we may say that no event has occurred either in ancient or modern times about which there is better evidence than this one. It really happened, right? But that's how the nations get uh, scattered. Now, open your Bibles to Genesis 10. We're almost done with this, and we're going to move on. Genesis 10, and we're going to take a look at a very interesting phrase there. Because <clears throat> this is cool when you start adding up the math. And again, it proves the point. Who came first, the biblical account, and the order in which the people began to spread out Okay, after God cursed the language. And it's an account of a guy named Pele. 
okay? And he was the first pirate. No, not that kind of leg. What are you guys talking about? You guys are goofy tonight. What are you doing? Right? Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to read two verses there, 25, verse 25, and then pop down to verse 32. But Genesis 10, okay, 25, <clears throat> talks about this guy. And uh, let's take a look there. And uh, says this. Now, two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg. Now, this is why you don't skip over the Bible, right? This is genealogies. And we've got the genealogies. We, you know, we, we cross stitch this on our pillows, right? right? We have this on our bumper stickers. Our favorite chapter in the whole Bible is Genesis 10, genealogies. Yeah, usually this is the part we skip over, let's be honest. Unfortunately, don't skip over because there's a little nugget in here. God puts everything in there for a reason. So all of a sudden, he just, and he busts out and he gives a little explanation about this guy. There were two sons born Eber. One's name was Peleg, because in his time, the earth was what? Divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's son, according to the lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Well, how did that happen? Then he goes into the Tower of Babel and shows the motivation why they spread out and divided over the earth i.e. the Tower of Babel instant, okay? Now, when you do the math, this is what's interesting. Peleg, they would say that he uh, was born roughly around uh, 2247, okay? Now, the Tower of Babel, again, if you remember the date over here, was roughly around 2250 B.C. So it all kind of, for some strange reason, seems to kind of line up there, all right? So from the birth of this guy, that's when things begin to take uh, place, okay? Now, what's interesting is you take a look at the historical records, uh, you see it in exact order. In fact, you see it from the immediate proximity, and then begin spreading out, exactly like the Bible says. Uh, the first one is the Chaldean records, and they say that the nation of Babylon was founded in 2234. 2234. Notice this is way before the 2000. That's even if you want to buy that. Okay, 2234, about 13 years after Peleg. Okay, and Babylon, of course, is located right next to the Tower of Babel, that's where we get Babylon. So the first group of people basically got, you know, they're on work on the tower and all of a sudden their languages get confused. So what do they do? Just like the Toltec Indians. There's a group speaking the same language. They all gather together. They hang out together, right? Because they know each other. The rest of them don't. It's all foreign languages. And so a group of them went not too far from the Tower of Babel. Bang, started Babylon and agrees with the records. Now, the next account that we see and this is just a sec, uh, secular historical evidence, is Egypt. Egypt, of course, goes a little bit further south. Okay, Babylon just pretty much close to, uh, uh, in that area, the plain of Shinar. And Egypt, and they say Egypt was founded in 2188, okay, okay, shortly after that, and about 60 years after the birth of Peleg. Then uh, Eusebius, another historian, uh, he records that Greece, the nation of Greece, which goes way over here to the west, okay, uh, was recorded for us in 2089, 2089 B.C. with Greece, okay, about 160 years after the birth of Peleg. Now, here's the whole point. Notice how you got Babylon, you got major uh, nations, right? N major historical nations. Uh, notice how all three of those nations completely speak a completely different language. Ba I mean, it's not even close. Babylon with e Egyptian and, and uh, the Greek language, okay? Totally different. But notice the dates between the two they're not that far away from each other. So how do you get so radically different of a language? Unless, of course, your languages were really completely confused, right? And then your whole group huddled and together and went and started your own society, okay? And then this is where I would say this would kick in, okay? Back to the story. So you got all this happening before the Hindu River, but I'll give you this one. Granted, about 2000 BC, okay, another group of people 
from the Tower of Babel, congregated together, and guess where they went? They went to the Indus River region, where the Hindu people, 500 years later, you put together your writings called the Veda. But I said all that to get to this. Which came first? The, the biblical account. Absolutely. So don't bind the lie that these other religions, there's other older religions, and so we should pay attention to them. Because some people even go to the next step, false step, and they'll say, and Christianity was just a ripoff from those other ones. Those other ones are true because they're older. That's a lie when you do the research. All right. So we got that from the first sentence. All right. <clears throat> Hinduism. First blank. What do you guys want to do? Don't light off firecrackers in here. I don't want to. Uh, <clears throat> Hindu, your first blank. Hinduism has no founders. Your first blank there. Hinduism has no founder. It's a diverse religion, okay, ranging from polytheistic, okay, meaning many, polytheistic, uh, theos, God, polytheistic, to mono, one theism, one God, okay? In fact, they're basically all over the place, right? You, you have basically this mentality that's uh, in the world today, unfortunately, even in the church. Hey, you know, all paths lead to heaven. Doesn't matter what you believe. Hey, whatever you believe is true to you. Whatever you believe is true to me. Relative. That's from Hinduism. Most people don't realize that. Right? You could be just, it will say, you could even be like an atheist and you could still be a Hindu. It's all encompassing. And that's the mindset that's flooded because of the evangelistic efforts from the, uh, in the uh, early uh, previous century over here to the West. But anyway, uh, it's difficult to si- summarize Hindu theology because they basically accept just about any kind of theological system. Uh, monism, only one thing is, exists, that's from the Sankara school. Pantheistic, only one divine being exists. Uh, so that God is uh, all, he's the world, everything, you, me, the pew, oh, that's the Brahmanism. Uh, panentheistic, the world is a part of God, uh, Ramanuja school, and a theistic, only one God, uh, that's Bhakti Hinduism, okay? But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Other schools of Hinduism can be, I'm not joking, listen, atheistic, deistic, even nihilistic, basically that it's a rejection of everything, life is meaningless, uh, and so listen to the question he poses. Well, with such a diversity under the title Hindu, one wonders what makes Hindu a person Hindu in the first place. Here's basically the one caveat. Anything goes, any God, any version, come one, come all, which is permeated society. It's this. The only real issue is whether or not a belief system recognizes the Vedas, their sacred writings, as sacred. If it does, then it's Hindu. If it doesn't, no Hindu. So basically, believe anything you want, but as long as you say that the Hindu Vedas are the source of truth, you're cool. Can you believe that? And isn't that what people do today? I've read this before, but this is where I'm telling you, a lot of the mindset of the American people, and even, unfortunately, the American church, is spin off from 100 years of evangelization here in the West from, uh, the Hindu, from Hinduism. And they don't even realize it. But this come one, come all, you get to pick whatever. Hey, anything goes just as long as you, you know, believe in the Vedas. This same mentality has created what's called salad bar religion. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar with the people you try to witness to or even people you go to church services to. Hopefully not sunrise. That's right, hopefully not sunrise. But let, let, me, let me listen to this. Uh, salad bar d- uh, religion denotes the trend where people pick and choose different religious beliefs, doctrines, and practices, mixing and matching them as much as they would select food in the cafeteria. I'll try a little bit of this, a little bit of that. A little of this, right? Isn't that what people do? Well, I like what this guy says, or I believe in this one, or this one. That's Hinduism. They don't even realize it. That's where it's coming from. This is not just popular among non-Christians, the guy says, but also among people who consider themselves to be Christians. People borrow from different traditions. Then they add to them whatever religion they're used to. But they don't want anything with organized religion. 
right? Americans today write their own Bible. They fashion their own God. More often than not, the God they choose is more like a best friend who has endless time for their needs, no matter how trivial. Scholars call this domesticating God. They've turned him into a social planner, a therapist, a guardian angel. We have trivialized God. We assume that God is the butler who serves you for one reason, to give you a happy life. We've turned him into a divine Prozac, right? But it's what, which is idolatry. Because if it's not the God of the Bible, it's a false God. And if you worship that version, even as, you know, because how many times you hear people say, well, my God would never send somebody to hell, or my God, my, my, it's called an idol. Can we supplant that? When you say my God, and if it's not based on the scripture version of who God is, that's an idol, right? And I don't want to worship your God because that's an idol. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. But let's move on. So that's what's kind of hard. It's just come one, come all. That's kind of the basic premise of Hinduism. Okay? And Hinduism goes on. The forces of nature and human heroes are personified as gods and goddesses and worshipped with prayers and offerings. Right? So that's just like the Bible. No, I don't think so. Now, the phrase, and this, again, is already permeated, as we saw in our terminology study, okay, but it's already permeated our society and this mentality, even towards Jesus, and that's that phrase, an avatar, right? That's Hinduism, right? And basically, an avatar is supposed to be an emanation of the Hindu gods, right? But listen, I'm going to describe to you uh, avatars, and uh, then we're going to go back and show you that that's kind of people, even, unfortunately, in the church's mentality towards Jesus. He's just another avatar, right? They denigrate him, okay? But where did they get this mindset? A hundred years, roughly, of westernized evangelization from Hinduism here in the West. And they don't even know because they don't understand Hinduism, okay? But you got, the, basically, they're, like I said, we, the, Hinduism, again, they're, you know, last count, apparently, I don't know if it was a government job or what, with all due respect. For those of you who work for the government, I'm not making fun of you, okay? Uh, 330 million gods, right? But their top 10 avatars uh, would have to be uh, Matsya. That's the fish one. <laughs> yeah, it smells fishy, doesn't it? Uh, Kerma, that's the turtle, all right? And this is something they worship, right? Uh, and not Kermit, the <laughs> Kermit. Uh, Vahara, the boar. Uh, Narasimha, the man lion. Vamana, the dwarf. Uh, Parashu Rama, that's Rama with an axe. Uh, Rama, period. That's, uh, he's got his wife named Sita. And Krishna, that's the big one. And uh, the teacher of the Bhagavad Gita, whatever you say. Uh, and Buddha Balarama, the founder of Buddhism. That's going to be our next topic. We'll get into the alternate brother of Krishna and Kalki, the horse uh, future avatar. Okay. Now, again, avatar is supposed to be a bodily incarnation of one of these deities. Okay. Uh, and they believe that an avatar can become incarnate at one place at a time as a full avatar or in many places simultaneously uh, and be a partial avatar. Now, if you study your church history, this is nothing new. It's a false teaching. Okay. And avatars is simply a, a false teaching in the church uh, back in 200 AD. It's called docetism, or docetism, however you want to say that. Okay, it's a docasis in the Greek is where that word comes from. And that word means apparition or phantom. And basically, that was a false teaching that the early church had to deal with. About 200 AD at the Council of Nicaea, I believe in 325 AD, they put it down, absolutely not. That's heresy. And basically, it's just Jesus didn't really have a body. It was just, it was a phantom. It was an apparition, i.e., he was just an avatar, okay? And that was put down. Uh, in Hinduism, the avatar appears to the devotee in whatever form the worshiper envisions. So again, you get to make it up. According to the Hindu belief, it could be, listen, it could be Muhammad, could be Krishna, 
Could be Jesus. Could be Buddha. Could be any other personal God. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. Have you listened to the verbiage in our country? Jesus is just like any of the other prophets out there, teachers out there. Just like who? Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad. What is it? That's Hinduism. That's avatar mentality. It's not the Bible. Now, not only that, listen to this. The purpose of the avatar's manifestation, according to Hinduism, is to restore dharma. Not that horrible sitcom they used to have. Uh, dharma means the uh, social order, uh, cosmic social order, and it encompasses behavior and focuses on duty, ritual, law, morality, and ethics, good deeds, etc. So now couple that with this. Well, Jesus, he not only was just like Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius, but why did they come? You know, they all came to teach us to what? Do good deeds and live the right way and do unto others. It's the same thing. It's avatar mentality. But that's not Jesus, okay? Avatars are mostly associated with the god uh, Vishnu. Now, we're going to get into, if we make it that far, uh, the, basically uh, the deities uh, you know, from the, the one god concept, the Brahman, they split them up into three. There's Vishnu, Brahma, and Shiva, okay? And they say that Vishnu, that comes most of these avatars, although, again, come on, come on, it can come from any one of them. Okay, uh, but that's what they believe. And, uh, but basically, some Hindus consider Jesus an avatar, uh, and specifically, they will say he's specifically the reincarnation of Krishna. So again, pay attention to that, right? It's just like when you witness to the Mormon, and they say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Don't accept it. Because who is your Jesus? Your Jesus, according to your teachings, false teachings, he's the spirit brother of Satan. You, you knock on another door. Here comes another Jehovah's Witness. Oh, I believe in Jesus. No, you don't. Not the biblical Jesus. Because you believe he was the archangel Michael. Just talked to a guy on the phone last week. Okay? Dealing with that issue. Okay? Again, we're going to get into that later. Same thing with Hindu. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Yeah. What, what, what version? First of all, you say he's an avatar. And you probably think he was a reincarnation of Krishna. You have to get behind the veneer. Don't fall for that baloney. Jesus was not reincarnated. He was resurrected. Jesus was not an avatar. He's fully human and fully God uh, at the same time. Okay, let's continue on now. So he talks about there the gods and goddesses worshiped by prayer offerings. Hindus believe that the world is an illusion. Remember that was their time, uh, term, Maya? Okay, and they believe in reincarnation, an endless cycle of continuous suffering and rebirth and karma. All is determined by the impersonal law of cause and effect and good and bad deeds. Lord willing, next week we're going to get into that in much greater detail. A, personal, uh, a person's goal is to free the soul from the endless cycle of rebirth and be absorbed into the ultimate principle, the Hindu idea of God or Brahman. Uh, and the accumulation of negative karma leads to reincarnation. So again, as we saw, you're forever stuck in this uh, uh, cycle of endless uh, death and reincarnation because you did something bad in a past life, and, and then you're trying to work it off with your good deeds, but you can't, you keep coming back, and the whole thing is, i got to get out of this thing, right? Nothing at all like Christianity, and we'll get into that more uh, next week. Well, according to the Hindus, God, Brahman, is one impersonal. So is this the same thing as our God? Absolutely not impersonal, ultimate, and unknowable. Can we know God? The one and only true God? Absolutely. Spiritual reality. Among many Hindus, Brahman is personalized as Brahma, the creator, with four heads, symbolizing creative energy. Vishnu, okay, the preserver, the god of stability and control, and Shiva, uh, destroyer god of endings. Now, this is what is called their big trimurti. Okay? And people say, oh, well, see, they're just like Christianity. We can all get along. No, it's not trimurti. It's not trinity radically radically different 
Okay, complete opposite. Let me give you uh, some examples of that real quick. Brahman is the only supreme deity they believe, the, and they call the absolute. But uh, Brahman is an impersonal power or a way beyond good and evil, not a personal being. Is that like our God? No. There are thousands, even millions of manifestations of Brahman. Is that how God presents himself? Absolutely not. Okay. And uh, including the three leading Hindu deities of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Okay. And each may be worshipped, even as these supposed gods may be worshipped as animals and plants. That's why you had the turtle and the fish and the thing, God, whatever the avatar. Uh, Hinduism, though, does not require worship of any deity. Notice this come one, come all, whatever you make it up, right? Who cares? Just as long as you believe in the Vedas. Okay. Hindus may imagine their own Brahman in any way that works for them. The purpose of all Hindu practice is enlightenment with the goal to escape the endless cycle of birth, death, rebirth, i.e. reincarnations, and to permanently lose one's identity and soul by being absorbed into Brahma. So that's what it is. So you and I, our whole goal in life is a works-based system where we have to try to do enough good deeds to uh, stop being reincarnated into another life so that we can eventually break out and become nothing. That doesn't motivate me. <laughs> but that, that's basically Hinduism in a nutshell. That is not at all like Christianity. Let me give you a couple real quick differences between the Trimurti, right, uh, and uh, the Trinity, okay? Uh, the one and only true God, he is not a part of his creation. He's the one who created all things, okay? Uh, just as an artist is separate from the painting, right? Therefore, nothing else in all creation may be worshipped, according to the Bible. Not people, not animals, not trees, not stars, not planets. Nothing. Not even other spiritual beings. Not even angels. Only God. Radically different. Hinduism, yeah, whatever. Could be you, a person, a tree, a turtle, whatever. The true God exists only as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Unlike Brahman, God does not manifest himself as uh, other than what he has as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, no mere human can imagine him as you please. He's not saying, well, this week I'm going to add another hundred million different versions. No, that's it. And you don't have the ability to make it up as you go. Uh, next, God is infinite, and uh, each person of the Godhead is equally infinite. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, they're all equally omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Hindus, and you know, when uh, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Same thing. That's what the Bible teaches of the Trinity. But Hindus would not say of Shiva, to see Shiva is to see Brahma. They're not. And so there's a, there's a separate distinction there. That's not like the Trinity. God is a personal being, not an impersonal force. He has a personality, mind, will, and emotions. And each person of the Trinity, if you read the scripture, uh, experiences grief. But this whole Brahma concept, right, is it's impersonal. It's just a force. Okay? A little bit similar to Mormonism. Again, one of these days we'll get to that. Uh, God is love. The biblical God. Love is the most defining characteristic of the Holy Trinity. God is not indifferent to those he created. He loves us enough to die for us, even the worst of us. Right? Uh, God desires a personal, intimate, loving relationship with us. Right? So much so that he adopts us as his own children. Okay? And he makes his home with us. You don't get that in Hinduism. God requires all people to worship him and only him. Again, you can't make it up as you go. Not a multitude of deities, etc. God is holy and requires all people to be holy, i.e. pure and sinless their whole lives. Yet nobody can meet this requirement. That's why it's the cross of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he did the requirement for us. Right? What's the whole purpose of Hinduism? You can do it. Eventually, it might take a billion years of reincarnation, but you can keep trying. Here's all the different techniques. Right? That's not at all. 
uh, like the Bible. God died to rescue people from the penalty of sins to allow them to live eternity in heaven. Not, no Hindu God ever died for all mankind, and there is no need of a savior in Hinduism. Radically different. Okay, The sun is the only way to heaven. Hinduism accepts infinite numbers of ways and paths uh, into oblivion, not heaven. Right? Radically different. God has a unique plan and purpose for each human being. Okay? Uh, and God wants to give you your true, unique, eternal identity, not absorb you into nothingness. We do not lose our identity in Christ. Right? You're still you. I'm going to tell corny jokes forever in heaven. What do you mean, oh no? Yeah. Hee haw. It's going to be awesome. Don't worry. God says he'll wipe away every tear or whatever. So anyway, that's right. <laughs> and they'll probably, he'll translate them. They'll actually be funny in heaven. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, so that's what we see there. So the, this tremority thing is not at all like that. As we get ready to close real quick. Each of these personalizations has come to earth. They believe in various incarnations or avatars to aid human beings. In, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and what's interesting as we close here, again, this whole avatar thing, if you look, and this is my background, new age and the occult. New Age and the occult, they have this avatar mindset, right? That we need another global religious teacher to appear on the scene who will help us to bring and restore peace and order to our planet, okay? Now, one of the guys out there, and he's basically a version of a Hindu mindset. Now, the only reason why and that this can work is if you have to get the planet to turn over to a Hindu mindset. Is that happening even in the church today? So people have been prepared for this last day scenario. Now, the guy that's going around the planet right now, and he's been out there for a while, okay, is a guy called Maitreya, okay, Maitreya, okay, promoted by this guy named Benjamin Cream, okay? And listen to this. Lord Maitreya, they call him, and this is supposed to be traipsing around the planet right now, okay, whom thousands of people all over the world consider him to be Jesus. Well, how could that be? Because of Hinduism. You, how many people, even in the church, unfortunately, we might get to some of those stats, believe in reincarnation in the church? You've got to be kidding me. It's crazy. So the world's completely indoctrinated in it, right? So, so they're buying into this. Oh, yeah, must be Jesus. Anti-Christ, false Christ, right? And the appearance is supposed to have spawned healing springs, weeping and bleeding statues, and even divine messages inscribed by the seeds uh, within fruit and vegetables. Read, if I was eating an apple and all of a sudden started to wiggle on the inside, I'd be throwing away the apple. I'd be stepping on the apple. There's a bug in my apple. <laughs> what? Right now, CNN. We've talked about this before in our final countdown study. They've actually aired commercials for this guy already on TV. Let me read you two transcripts. If the Christ or Buddha, where do you get this? Christ and Buddha is not the same thing, but it's an avatar mentality. If the Christ or Buddha returned today, this was on CNN. Would you recognize him? The one awaited by all major religions has come when we least expected it. He's ready to emerge openly very soon. Look for a bright shining star in the sky as a sign of his public emergence. Imagine a world free of war, poverty, and injustice, where sharing and cooperation replace greed and competition, where peace born of justice prevails. In the midst of today's chaos, is this new world possible? Now, in our midst, we have the help of an extraordinary kind expected by every major faith. He awaits but our invitation. Maitreya, the world teacher, is now among us. So the latest incarnation, the latest avatar, is apparently, they're saying, is on the planet now, just waiting to appear at the right time to lead us into what? 
Well, believe it, it's to lead us to, to uh, fall under lines of a one world leader. I wonder who that might be. The occult believes that once all the world's religions come together, uh, is Pope Francis doing anything of that nature lately? Yeah, it's happening all over the planet as we speak. And they're expecting it soon that a religious leader will be chosen to be the Earth's religious spokesman. And this spokesman will then encourage all the people of the world to accept a new world leader who will suddenly appear on the scene. Interestingly enough, the occult is in agreement that none of this can take place until the people who will never go along with this one world religion are taken out of the way. Can anybody guess who that is? Christian. In fact, they say, not my words, their words, they say that those who are restraining or holding things up won't necessarily die but will somehow mysteriously disappear or, in their words, quote, elect to leave this dimension as if going into another room. What's that sound like? Rapture. And then after that event, and I quote, and they believe that once these people leave this earth, the occult says the new world leader will take his rightful place over the world. That's exactly in line with the Bible. The church is raptured, then the Antichrist appears on the scene. We look for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. But when we're gone, whoo here he comes. Okay, And then and only then they believe it's possible to build a combination temple, church, mosque in Jerusalem. One world religion over there. And uh, they also believe that just minutes before the Antichrist arises, some supernatural sound will be heard and spiritually felt by everybody on the planet simultaneously. At no other moment in world history will so many people be impacted all at once. The action is designed to get everyone looking around as to what caused this sound. Quote, then with everyone's attention aroused, images of Antichrist will appear, who they think is a good guy, by the way, who will appear simultaneously over the entire earth, speaking to mankind, listen, each in his own language. Here the Antichrist will appear, listen, remember what we said about the avatar. You can imagine anyone you want. If you want it to be Buddha, he'll appear as Buddha. If you want it to be Jesus, he'll appear as Jesus. That's a Hindu mindset. Listen to what they say is going to take place to the planet. Here the Antichrist will appear as a man to a man, a woman to a woman. He will appear as a white to a white, a black to a black, an Indian to an Indian. It makes no difference whether you are viewing him in person or on TV. Thus, quote, he will show that he is all things to all people. What do you have to have in place in the mindset of the people of the world before they fall for that baloney? Hinduism. And what has been evangelized, not just in the East, that's been over there for a long time, they're already ready for it. But what is now creeping so heavily here in the United States, even in the church? Hinduism. Sounds like we better get equipped to understand what's going on. Because, uh, folks, this is all part and parcel of what's going to happen when you're living the last days. But it's a good thing we see no signs of that happening soon. Very interesting. None of this makes sense until you do your homework and understand. Lord willing, next time we're going to get into some of the classic ones. We're going to get into the issue of karma. Right? Because some people say, well, karma, that's just the same thing as what the Bible. We can work with the Hindus because it's the same thing as the, you know, uh, what the Bible says, you reap what you sow. That's the same thing. No, it's not. Then they'll say, well, reincarnation, the Bible teaches reincarnation. No, it doesn't. Well, reincarnation is the same thing as resurrection. No, it's not. So we're going to get into that a lot, Lord willing, next week. Uh, and then, Lord willing, we're going to finish up into, of course, how do you witness to a Hinduism? Because you don't just write them off like anybody else, witness to them. Right? Some things to consider. And then, Lord willing, we're going to finish up with the dark side. Not the Star Wars thing. We're saving that for Buddhism. What religion is George Lucas pushing? And we'll get into some of the martial arts and things of that nature that's also evangelizing people, but that's in Buddhism. But we're going to get into the darker side, okay? Uh, because you keep going down this route, just like anything that's demonic, it's going to get darker. And we're going to get into the tantric yoga. This is Satanism to the core, okay? And it is ugly. Most people don't realize what you're playing with and flirting with. But uh, Lord, when we'll finish up with that. 
Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. 
Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.